truly in my heart of hearts, picture Epictetus looking and sounding like the coach from the original Rocky movie. Uh, but you have to picture him with a beard. He would shout at Rocky, you know, it's a waste of life. But he would also give kind of rousing comments. You know, there's that comment where he's like, kid, you gotta eat nails and crap lightning. So I think of Epictetus as kind of the lovable, uh, sometimes angry coach. Welcome to another edition of the Mouse Book Club. Today we're focusing on the Enchiridion by Epictetus. This is a very special show for me personally. Uh, I discovered Epictetus about 15 years ago, and it really hit me just at the right time in my life. And it was a text that had a tremendous impact on my thinking and the way that I go about living my life. And so when we started Mouse Books, this is one of the, the texts that I really wanted to get out there. And I'm so glad we, we finally did. So we have something a little unique today. Instead of just interviewing one expert, we have two uh, wonderful guests. The first is Brian Johnson, who is an associate professor at Fordham University and the author of The Role Ethics of Epictetus, Stoicism in Ordinary Life. Uh, a cool fact is that Brian was one of the earliest subscribers to Mouse Books. So Brian's really one of us. Our second guest is Massimo Piglucci, who is a professor at the City University of New York and the author of How to Be a Stoic using ancient philosophy to live a modern life. So what's really special about these two is that they're very complementary in their domain of expertise. Brian is a translator and is working on the first comprehensive translation of Epictetus that's been done in about 100 years. And Massimo is, does, is a different kind of translator. He translates Epictetus into modern life and has been very effective at doing that for a generalist audience. So, without further ado, let's jump right into this conversation. Why is Epictetus really important to you? Uh, and how did you, how did you kind of come to discover this and how did it come to become important in your life? Uh, so, so what happened here, what happened is that a few years ago, I was going through a midlife crisis of some sort. You know, nothing terrible, but a few things happened. They were stressful. And uh, I figured that uh, I needed some kind of reorientation, some new way of looking at, at things. And so since I'm a kind of a systematic analytic person, I said, okay, let me look at, the, at philosophy. I zeroed in pretty quickly on, on virtue ethics. I looked at, at Aristotle and I looked at Epicurus and I didn't find anything that actually was very helpful. And then one day on my Twitter feed, I hear, I, I read this thing that said, um, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I said, the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Uh, and then I could, you know, that, then I kind of remember all oh, the Stoics, that's Marcus Aurelius. I read the meditations in, in college. Oh, that's Seneca. I translated Seneca from Latin when I was in high school, but I never put the two together. So anyway, I signed up for this thing. I said, okay, I, I'm going to see what, what's, what's going on here. And the first thing, uh, it's Stoic Week that year that happened was that I downloaded, I had to download uh, some, some reading material. And the first reading material was about Epictetus. So uh, I read one of the first things I read from Epictetus is this, this thing where he says, well, it doesn't look like uh, I have to die today. Um, so uh, we'll think later about dying. Uh, right now I'm hungry. Let's go for lunch. And I said, who is this guy that talks about both very deep issues like, you know, death, that, that hardly is anything more, you know, paramount than that. And then he also says, 
very practical. Yeah, but this is not going to happen today. So we have other issues to, to, deal, to deal with. And he has a sense of humor bordering on sarcasm, actually. Um, so it really struck me as, as very interesting immediately. And then I realized that I never heard of the guy, even though I have a PhD in philosophy and I took courses in ancient philosophy. And I said, how is that even possible that you know, I never, never came across this name. So then later on, I found out that there are reasons for that. Epictetus, as it, as it turns out, was a household name for like 18 centuries. Throughout, not only in antiquity, his, his school in Nicopolis was uh, one of the most famous uh, in the early second century. Throughout the, the Middle Ages, his manual was used by uh, Christian monks as, uh, as a manual of exercises. It was read through the, through the, through the Renaissance. Uh, the founding fathers of the United States had a copy of the Enchiridion or the manual, uh, usually with them, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, George Washington. It's like he only went into a partial eclipse at the beginning of the 20th century, and we're trying to bring him back because he, he really deserves it. Do you think that if you would have discovered him when you were in high school or something that you would have gotten it? Do you think you lived enough life at that point where it would have really impacted you? That's a great question. I, I think so. I think Epictetus speaks to teenagers uh, because, for one thing, because probably he really did, meaning that his students were probably teenagers uh, or, or thereabout or young, young men, most men, I assume, because at the time it was very unusual for women to go to philosophy school. He does speak to young people. And of course, yes, it does take a certain background to, to really get what he's talking about and, and to, uh, to appreciate it. But I think actually it would be great to introduce young people to not only Stoic philosophy in general, but Epictetus in particular, because it's, it resonates. It's so down to earth. It's so practical. It's so full of sense of humor that is unlike a lot of other philosophers, ancient or modern, that are difficult to read. Epictetus is just a breeze at the superficial level. Then he also, there's a second layer, uh, you know, much deeper where Brian actually comes in uh, in, a, in a far better way than I, than I can do it. But at, the, at, a, at a, you know, general level, I think it, it's for everybody. What a perfect transition. Brian, how did you get, become introduced to this world? So I was exposed at least to Stoicism as an undergraduate, and I definitely enjoyed them a great deal because they create a kind of beautiful system where all the pieces hang together. Um, you know, what they say about physics influences what they say about logic, which influences what they say about um, ethics. When I, you know, and I went off to grad school, I was not originally planning on writing about Epictetus. Initially, I started doing just a little bit of work on Seneca. I was in a Greek reading group at the time, and I was asked to be a lead translator, kind of like presents to the rest of the group, one of Epictetus's discourses uh, on this idea that we all have roles and, um, you know, we kind of process the world through our roles and things make sense to us or seem reasonable to us based on whether uh, we have it as a role or not. I was blown away by that particular discourse uh, because I realized that's how I interpret the world. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I think, well, I'm a brother, I've got these obligations. I'm a friend, I have these obligations. I'm a teacher, I have these obligations and so forth. Uh, that message kind of hit me at the right time. Uh, I think unlike Massimo, when I was in high school, I probably wasn't ready for it. Uh, it would have struck me as much too austere I mean, I was certainly very interested in philosophy in high school, um, but uh, I don't think I was ready for uh, Epictetus in particular. 
Could you talk about how Epictetus fits into the set, the greater cast of characters who formulate how we think about Stoicism? That's a really good question. So um, Stoicism actually was born right after the time of Aristotle. Unfortunately, the material we have from that is largely fragmentary. It's just later reports. I mean, we have portions, uh, but it is still fragmentary. And in the early days, the Stoics actually just called themselves Socratics. They thought they were kind of continuing the message of uh, Socrates. But I would say that in terms of Epictetus, it really is the what we call the kind of Roman era of Stoicism, where we start to have a robust body of material surviving. Uh, so the earliest is going to be this guy Cicero. And although technically Cicero, you know, first century BC is not a Stoic, considers himself kind of a mild skeptic, but he thinks that Stoic ethics is the best. And Cicero wrote dialogues to try to make various philosophical schools, especially Stoicism, more accessible. And many of those works survive. Uh, and then after Cicero, the other Latin writer is going to be Seneca. Uh, and then I would say after Seneca, just after Seneca, you know, the kind of first great Greek writer is going to be Epictetus. Uh, and Epictetus is first century AD. Uh, the last kind of great Stoic is going to be the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was also writing in Greek. So what sets Epictetus's writing apart from the other Stoic writing that we have access to? So Epictetus himself did not actually write. What you are reading in the handbook is itself supposedly a series of extracts from what are called the discourses. And the discourses themselves allegedly are not uh, what happened during Epictetus's classes during the day. Instead, they are the encounters that would happen after the school day when people would raise further questions uh, and even say magistrates would come and consult with Epictetus. And one of Epictetus' students, a historian by the name of Arian, uh, made the commitment to write down as much as he possibly could from Epictetus. And he tells us an opening letter, you know, I tried to capture everything he said. And that's why the discourses feel very much off the cuff, if you will. What is distinctive about Epictetus is that on the one hand, he is very blunt, very direct, and he has very hardcore examples. Like he wonders about, you know, the slave who has to hold the chamber pot for his master. You know, very difficult uh, thing to do. But at the same time, he is often wickedly funny. And I think English often doesn't quite capture that. Yeah, that's what when Massimo and or uh, Brian, one of the things I'm curious about when I read him is what his character was like in your imagination. Like, what do you think it was like to be around him? Massimo's going to laugh because I actually talked about this. Yeah, uh, you, you, got, you have a good answer for that one. So go for oh, it. <laughs> so, and, and this is true even when I was writing my dissertation on Epictetus. I truly, in my heart of hearts, picture Epictetus looking and sounding like the coach from the original Rocky movie, uh, Burgess Meredith. Uh, but you have to picture him with a beard, of course, because Epictetus was very proud about having a beard. And, you know, Burgess Meredith would shout at Rocky, you know, it's a waste of life. Uh, but he would also give kind of rousing comments. You know, there's that comment where he's like, you know, kid, you gotta eat nails and crap lightning. And there are times when, when Epictetus himself will be very rousing with his students. You know, at the end of Discourse, you know, book one, he's like, look, you're gonna get out there and you're gonna be of the mind that I, you were overtrained. You're gonna like, I spent all this hard work. This is way easier than I thought. So I think of Epictetus um, as kind of the uh, lovable, uh, sometimes angry coach. That doesn't match with the kind of modern use of the term stoic. 
No, yeah. it doesn't. That's right. And I think Matsubo can speak better to this. Well, so could you talk to us a little bit about the, I, I mean, maybe we could do two things at once to kind of condense two very important points. Could you just give us like a, the broadest brush definition of stoicism, but then also at the same time, kill the major myths about. Okay. So, Massimo is going to do a better job on this. And also, I think we can blame the British, you know, it's Lipschitz and those guys who That's really did the wrong, wrong perspective. But Massimo has thought a lot about this. So It is a philosophy of life, the goal of which is to make us into better human beings. In fact, the best human beings you can become, the most excellent human beings that, that you can become from an ethical, you know, moral perspective. And then the question is, how do you do that? Well, you do that by living according to nature. And human nature for the Stoics was essentially characterized by two things. We are highly social animals. Uh, we only thrive in, in social groups and with social relations. And we are capable of reason. Both of those things are found to some extent in the animal world, but to a much, much larger extent in, the, in human beings. We're, we're so far beyond any, anything else from those two perspectives. So what they derived from it was that the good human life, therefore, is a life where you use your reason in order to improve social living. You improve life for everybody, for what they call the human cosmopolis. That's the basic theory. And you do that by a number of approaches, one of which is to use something called the four cardinal virtues as a sort of a moral compass, four fundamental virtues, practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Practical wisdom is the, the knowledge of what is really good for you and what is really not good for you, which may be very different from what other people tell you it's good for you or it's not good for you. Um, in fact, for the Stoics, it is very different. Uh, courage is not physical courage necessarily, but moral courage, the, the courage to do the right thing. Justice means treating other people as you would like to be treated, as inherently worth it as human beings. And temperance is, is the ability to do things in the right measure, neither too much nor too little. So the, the notion, one, one way to understand Stoicism is that you go through life with these four things in your mind that uses a compass. And every, every time you, are, you find yourself in a situation, you interrogate the four virtues and they will tell you what to do. So let me give you a specific example. Let's say that I go to work and my boss is harassing a coworker. And the question is, do I intervene or not? Practical wisdom tells me yes, because intervening is good for my own character. Not only it actually helps my coworker, but it's good for my own character. Not intervening is cowardly and it's bad for my character. It undermines my own character. So the first answer is yes. Does it take courage? Yes, it does because it's my boss. I could face retaliation, right? I could get fired or get on his bad side or whatever it is. So that's true to yes. Third, is it a just thing to do? Of course it is. If I were in the place of my a co-worker, I would want somebody to come in and step in and say, hey, what, what is going on? You know, let's, let's calm down and talk about it. What about temperance? Well, temperance tells you what you need to do in what measure you're going to intervene. So I don't want to just mutter something under my, my breath so that my boss doesn't hear me because that's not doing anything. But at the same time, I don't want to jump on my boss and punch him on the nose because that seems like an overreaction. And the same goes for any other situation. Everything that you, you, you find yourself doing that's how you approach it. So that's one way to understand that there are different approaches to stoicism, but that's one way to, to look at it. As far as the, the stereotypes, of course, the word stoic today means somebody who goes through life with a stiff upper lip and suppresses emotions, you know, things like, like something like uh, Mr. Spock from Star Trek. 
And for all the fact that I love the character of Spock, I don't think that's a good model for, for a normal you know, human life. There is a grain of truth in the stereotype. And, you know, stereotypes often are based on a misunderstanding or a distortion of something that's actually fundamentally there. For instance, uh, other ancient philosophies also suffer from the same reason. The Epicureans are often presented as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of philosophy but they were not. Uh, they did say that pleasure is the, the most important thing in life, but they really turns out they, de they define pleasure as lack of pain, lack of emotional pain. So it's like, okay, that's pretty mild. That's no sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Same thing with the Stoics. The Stoics do value endurance. That's where the stiff upper lip probably comes from. Why? Well, because if, if you cannot change things, if there's something like, you know, we're right now in the middle of a pandemic, uh, well, I only have two choices. I, I don't control the pandemic. I can't make it go away. I only have two choices. Either I accept that this is a fact and then act accordingly, do whatever I can within my, my power of agency to deal with the situation or throw a tantrum. But throwing a tantrum doesn't help. The pandemic is still going to be there at the end of the tantrum. And now I feel bad about myself as well. So the, the notion of endurance has that kind of, of basis. As far as the suppressing of the emotions is concerned, the Stoics were not trying to suppress emotions, partly because they realized already what mo any modern psychologist could tell you, which is you cannot suppress your emotions. <laughs> you can only manage them, but you cannot suppress them. But what they were trying to do was, in a sense, restructure the, emotional, the normal emotional spectrum, moving away from what they refer to as unhealthy emotions, such as anger, fear, and hatred, and positively, mindfully cultivating healthy emotions such as joy, love, a sense of justice, and things like that. I've got a, a quick follow-up on that, uh, Massimo, that comes out of your book. Uh, I think a lot of, if I understand it right, and you can, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the pro that project is geared towards taking this philosophy and translating it into practices that you can employ to help you in your life, you know, and one of them uh, specifically that I was wondering if you could talk about is the idea of pausing and breathing. Yes, pausing before, you know, before getting angry. Uh, that's right. The ancient Stoics talked about that in, in the context of anger, but actually Epictetus talks about pausing in the context of every, pretty much everything. According to the Stoics, we receive impressions from the outside world and sometimes, actually, some of these impressions are even internally, mentally generated. And, and we tend to act on impressions without really thinking too much about it. And that's a mistake. Because acting on things, on our first impressions about things, uh, it's very likely to, to um, bring us to do the wrong thing, to react in the, in the wrong way. So let me, for instance, uh, again, give you an example. So let's say that I cross the street, uh, you know, um, outside of my apartment, and I see a very attractive uh, you know, person of the appropriate gender, whatever the appropriate gender happens to be for me. And my first impression, as the Stoics would call, would call it, is like, hey, wouldn't it be interesting and, and, and fun to sleep with that person? Epictetus says, yeah, okay, that's your first impression. So look at it from a distance, pause, look at it from a distance and, and interrogate it. Say, well, that's what you look, you look like, but are you really what you claim to be? In this particular case, if I stop for a second and reflect on it, I said, yeah, sure, other things being equal, that would be interesting, but I am married, I'm in a great relationship, I love my wife, so why the hell would I want to do anything like that? And so you stop the impression, you, as the Stoics would put it, you deny assent to that impression. 
this is a standard story technique. The notion in a sense is kind of the opposite of the Nike commercial. Don't just do it. Stop and think about it before you do it. Because it turns out that most of the times you might not want to do it actually if you, if you think about it. One thing that I think a lot about in terms of our contemporary culture for which stoicism is often misapplied or misused, which is the culture of self-optimization. Not just self-help or self-improvement, but optimization for the sake of work or overwork. Um, My favorite line in Enchiridion is you're, you're either a philosopher or one of the mob. So (laughs) I, 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 perceive stoicism being used as a tool at the corporate level to say, calm down, be, you'll be more productive, you'll be a better member of the team. But that doesn't seem to me to fit Epictetus's idea of, how, of what kind of position a stoic should have vis-a-vis society and work and capitalism and so forth. I wonder what you might have to say about the stoic stance toward the, broad, the, the dominant culture of one's environment. So if I can jump in, maybe like a translation point. Sometimes Epictetus talks about a philosopher as though it is a a narrow role. You know, basically in in this way, then Massimo and I are philosophers because we professionally make a living as uh, teachers of philosophy. But in another sense, uh, Epictetus will sometimes talk about philosopher in the more general sense of its root sense of a lover of wisdom. And I suspect the, what was being translated as the mob, uh, Epictetus will contrast the philosopher with the lay person. And what he means by that is, you know, this, the person who has actually not been trained in a kind of virtue or right living. You know, so first I would say that, you know, really you should understand the, the contrast be, between the philosopher and say the mob or the lay person, you know, however it was meant to be translated, as a contrast between a person who loves the truth and loves virtue versus the person who loves only material goods. Um, you know, because the mob, of course, is overtaken by, you know, the, the glistening glimmer uh, right. of these external goods. And they think that chasing them are going to make them happy uh, when, you know, Epictetus' lesson is that they, they just don't. What really matters is using them in the right way. And then I think, secondly, the language of personal optimization, I would say, does misunderstand Epictetus in the following way. And here I'm going to use some of his language of roles. You know, Epictetus really thinks that our most fundamental role is the role of a human being. What is the role of a human being? Well, it's to be rational, to be a reasonable member of society, to be a virtuous person. You know, what Epictetus is going to say, if you're going to optimize something, optimize that. And so if we're really going to be focusing on personal optimization, we're not going to be trying to crunch numbers so that then, you know, my Pomodoro technique, I can do 30 minutes or 45 minutes instead of 25 (laughs) minutes or whatever. Instead, Epictetus is going to ask you to consider how honest were you today? You know, how fair were you in your dealings with other people? Uh, So optimize your virtue. Second, then, when it comes to this more contemporaneous notion, contemporary notion, say, of personal optimization, you know, Epictetus is interested in use of talents. The real issue is not a story of external success. It's rather, are you wasting what you've been given by nature? Again, to kind of quote the Rocky scene, you know, there's a great scene when when Rocky has a confrontation with a coach, and Rocky's like, you know, you keep giving me such a hard time. And uh, the coach says, look, you had the ability to be a great fighter and you wasted it. Epictetus is more concerned about the waste of talents as something that that simply is a loss, as opposed to whether or not you made more money 
Uh, and then finally, I would say that, you know, again, one last appeal to Rocky. You know, Rocky actually loses at the end of the first movie, but it actually doesn't matter uh, right. because he used his talents to the fullest. So Epictetus would say, you know, what matters is the use of your talents to the fullest uh, to be a virtuous human being, regardless of business success or failure. But even, even Epictetus uh, himself says that there is nothing wrong with pursuing what the Stoics refer to as externals, uh, things like money, you know, position, a career, or something like that, so long as that is subordinate to be, being a good person. At some point, he says, sure, I will, if, if I can make my money honestly and I can use it properly in order to help my friends and my family and you know, the society at large, I would most, most certainly make money. But if you ask me to give up my integrity, for that. That's where I draw the line. That's where I say, you know, I'm not going to do it. In terms of modern uh, sort of misunderstandings or misapplications of stoicism, yeah, there is such a thing as Silicon Valley stoicism, as uh, sometimes it's referred to. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you hear this, you, you read these, uh, these articles. I read one just the other day about how Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates are stoic because they, they use stoic principles in order to make billions. And I said, no, Epictetus would just completely turn around in his grave if he heard anything like that. Now, what is true is that you can use stoic techniques in order to advance goals that are not necessarily stoic. Just because somebody meditates, that doesn't make him a Buddhist. Okay. People meditate without necessarily buying into Buddhist philosophy, even without accepting that there are you know, the four noble truths or the eightfold path to, to enlightenment. In fact, conversely, you could be a Buddhist and not meditate at all. Not every Buddhist meditates, and certainly a lot of Buddhists don't spend a lot of time meditating anyway. Uh, they just have their regular lives. The same goes with Stoicism. And you, you can use some of the Stoic techniques, such as analytical journaling, for instance, to understand better your emotions and, and manage better your, your life. You can use several, several kinds of meditations that come out of the Stoic tradition without accepting the fundamental notion that the major goal of your life should be to be a better human being. Now, of course, from my perspective, if that's what you do, you're wasting an opportunity. I think you should embrace the philosophy, not just the techniques. But the two are separable to some extent. I want to open this up to questions, but I just have one more question that I want to ask before, which is to Brian, because you are unique in the sense that you're a a very hardcore translator, and we haven't had that opportunity to talk to somebody who does that. Uh, could you just, as briefly as you can, explain the process that you have to go through and what your kind of relationship to this material is? <laughs> I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but like... <laughs> so I'm working on a kind of complete translation of Epictetus from the ground up. There are four books of the discourses. The, the books of the discourses are much longer than the Enchiridion. And then there's maybe five pages of fragments. Um, and I am in the early parts of book two. Uh, but it took me 18 months to um, get through uh, book one. Sometimes I'll only make it a few lines a day. On my best days, I once made it through 10 lines. Um, on some days, uh, only one or two lines. Uh, I would say in terms of process, one of the early things I did is I compiled a private dictionary of Greek terms that's now like longer than what I'm actually gonna publish. It's probably 800 pages long, where then I've logged translation choices for all the kind of technical words, uh, but even some trickier words. You know, I'll take the, the Greek line, and also I, I check other attempts to make sense of uh, the Greek lines, because 
our earliest copy of the text of Epictetus is actually from around the 1500s. And I've looked at pages of it, the scans of it, and it's really hard to read. I mean, it looks like, I mean, you take crappy handwriting and then put the crappy handwriting in Greek, and that's Epictetus. Uh, so it takes, you know, special scholars to even convert that, shall we say, into beautifully printed Greek. Uh, and sometimes they'll disagree with each other. They'll think, actually, I think the word here is this. Um, and also things have been hand copied. Uh, so I would say my process is I'll take a Greek line, uh, I'll work with my private dictionary, produce what I think it is, and then I will look at the, the major translations that are in English. Uh, there's basically, you know, two as of late, uh, one done in 1928, and then there's a revised version done by a guy named Robin Hard in like the 90s or whatever. And then I also look at a French translation. Um, and then I kind of like weigh my work against theirs. Um, and then once I finish a, a particular discourse, say, and those are only about five pages, then I start looking at old Latin commentaries, uh, German commentaries, that sort of thing to kind of glean extra information. So your final project will be a complete retranslation in addition to a bunch uh, of footnotes. A lot of footnotes. That's right. Yeah. So for example, you know, I was just working with a line today where Epictetus says, and literally the Greek is, you have to be stable. And as a translator, I've got to solve that puzzle. What the hell does it mean to be stable? Uh, I mean, I could guess and see, you know, maybe it means uh, to be emotionally stable, um, but I'll have to hit the library to see what other scholars have thought about. Um, and, you know, the, the quick answer, just so you know, is that um, it looks like to be stable is to act with reservation. So I'll know, um, yes, it's okay for me to pursue wealth in this way, but I shouldn't obsess over it. Are there any other like very specific anecdotes out of the translation that you've come across that are like, oh, okay, this is what makes translating super interesting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Epictetus I'm discovering is really good with sticking with a metaphor. One of the earlier uh, ones that I was working on, I think it's Discourse Book 1, Chapter 6, where Epictetus is using this imagery of rocks where he's talking about, in effect, you know, debating with a young hothead who won't listen to reason. He says, uh, what literally the Greek says is, you've turned into stone. Uh, and a bunch of people have translated that as, oh, you become petrified. But that's a terrible translation because in English, to become petrified is to be afraid. Um, and it's obvious that what Epictetus actually means is you got rocks in your head and you got rocks in your hearts. You got hard, you're hard-hearted and hard-headed. And so translating him consistently so that this kind of motif emerges and uh, rewarding, uh, but it is also uh, quite challenging. So I would say uh, Epictetus turns out to be very good with metaphor and even with wordplay. Hi, I'm Shaista. Um, and my question is for both of you, but it speaks to Massimo mentioned that he thinks it's a missed opportunity to not adopt the fundamentals of Stoicism while utilizing some of the teachings. So I wonder, do either of you believe it's possible to take what you need and leave the rest? Uh, that's a great question uh, to some extent, but I think you need to be careful when you do that, that sort of, uh, you know, pick and choose base basically. And uh, so let me step back for a second. I think that every philosophy, not just Stoicism, actually starts out originally as what they, what sometimes uh, they refer to as syncretic, meaning getting bits and pieces from one place or another. The founder of Stoicism was Zeno of Citium, who was a merchant, a Phoenician merchant, 
who lived at some point in Athens. And we know that Zeno studied with different philosophers from different schools for more than a decade before he started doing his own teachings. So the original version of Stoicism literally was bits and pieces taken from a bunch of different things, whatever worked for Zeno, right? But then a couple of generations later, the guy named Chrysippus, who was a great logician, came in and said, yeah, all done, however, we also need to make sure that this thing makes sense, that it's internally coherent, that we don't just have a grab bag of, of stuff that doesn't actually work together. And so he kind of smoothed thing out, threw out some things probably, uh, reinterpreted other things. And from then on, we have a system of stoicism that is actually internally coherent, uh, it makes sense. Then it still changed through the ages because other people started saying, well, maybe that doesn't work. So, so philosophies of life are always dynamic. They're always evolving. The point I'm trying to make is that they do evolve, however, in a way that ought to make sense. That has to be internally coherent. Because otherwise, if you simply pick stuff you know, that, that sounds good to you, what you might end up uh, with is a couple of things. Either things that contradict them, themselves they're at odds with themselves. And therefore, they're not going to be useful to you because when, when you come to a particular situation, well, which one are you going to pick? So uh, to give an example, often people ask me, well, isn't it possible to pick the best of uh, Epicureanism and, uh, and Stoicism? And I say, well, up to a point, yes. But when push comes to shove, if, if um, at the end of the day, I ask you, okay, given this situation, are you going to go after pleasure and absence of pain, or are you going to go for virtue and, your, and the building and your character? You can't both, there are situations where you cannot do both. And so if you answer one way, then you're definitely an Epicurean. If you're the other, the other way, you're a Stoic. That said, there are, Stoics, Stoicism also influenced a lot of other traditions, including particularly Christianity. And so there is a lot of Christianity actually that uh, is a rewriting or rethinking or, or, or reabsorbing and redigesting of stoicism. For one thing, I mentioned that if you remember early on the four virtues, right? Practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Well, those are four of the seven Christian virtues. The other three being uh, hope, faith, and charity. And uh, those seven are found in Thomas Aquinas, arguably the most important uh, theologian of the, of the Middle Ages. And he kind of put them together in a coherent way, although actually they're found in uh, earlier uh, Christian tradition as well. So that's a, one example where even the Christians themselves kind of put together things uh, in, from, from, previous, from previous traditions. So that can definitely be, be done. You just need to do it in a way that is cautious and, and maintains some level of coherence. Otherwise, you risk basically picking things that are good for you and rationalizing your choices instead of making good logical choices. My perception is that there is kind of a rise of stoicism in, in the world today. I've read Ryan Holiday, all of his recent stuff closely, so it's a sort of a popularization. Why do you think that is? And what is it today giving that rise to stoicism? So I'm going to attempt an answer, uh, but I also want to hear what uh, Massimo has to say. One common answer that I think people give to that question is that stoicism seems to be a philosophy especially suited to an age of crisis. When the Roman Stoics kind of coming on the scene from Cicero, you know, 50, 60 BC, all the way through uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, 170 AD, you know, that was a tumultuous time. Epictetus himself was, you know, born a slave, became free, but when he was a slave, he was owned by the personal secretary to Nero. 
one of the kind of mad emperors. And Epictetus saw up close the political chaos uh, of his day. And he also saw the ways in which even in chaos, people could be overtaken by personal ambition to pursue ends that were really not conducive to their well-being. I think that a philosophy that speaks to um, finding, let's say, peace of mind and tranquility in an age of chaos, uh, and also a philosophy that speaks to preserving one's integrity in the face of threats seems especially meaningful. Uh, whereas, say, by contrast, uh, you know, Epicureanism, you know, which is really uh, simple hedonism, uh, might be, um, you know, have more appeal in a more tranquil age, let's say. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a good, at least partial explanation for the resurgence of Stoicism. We can only guess because, uh, you know, we, I don't, I'm not aware of any sociological study that actually tracks, you know, the, the, the rise of Stoicism in the 20th century and things like that. Um, so we can only guess, but I think that Brian's guess is right on, on the mark. There are also a, a few other factors, I think, to consider. For one thing, in uh, the Western world, is in, partic in, in particular, and in fact, especially in the United States, over the last few decades, we've seen people moving away from, from mainstream religions the rise of the so-called nuns, uh, that is people that, are, that don't say, they don't, don't consider themselves a, a affiliated with any major religion. N-O-N-E-S, uh, not N-U-N-S. That's right. right, that's right. Now, those people are not necessarily atheists. In fact, most of them are probably not. And, uh, but, but whether they are or not, uh, the fact is we still, whether you are an atheist or not agnostic or uh, some kind of non-mainstream religious believer, you still need some kind of framework to organize your life. I mean, everybody has a philosophy of life, whether they know it or not, uh, whether they, they take it, they actually absorb it through their religion or, uh, or some other way. So I suspect that the rise of Stoicism in part has to do with the fact together with the rise of other philosophies like secular humanism, for instance, and even Buddhism for that, for that matter in the Western world, has to do in part at least with this notion that human beings still want some kind of general framework for how to live their lives. And when, they, when they're dissatisfied with the standard religion, then they look somewhere else for, for it. The other thing is, frankly, uh, the internet and, and social media. You know, these days it's far easier to find, to hook up with people, find resources. There is a lot of free resources on Stoicism online. There is a, the largest Facebook uh, group for Stoic practitioners has more than 85,000 members. So it, it's very, and there are many, many others. So it's very easy also once that an idea begins to get hold of, uh, of society, then it's much easier actually to propagate because this, this thing actually reverberates very, very quickly. And then finally, there was actually a concerted effort. In 2012, a group of about a dozen people met in London, and these were um, you know, philosophers, you know, ancient, specialists in ancient philosophy and uh, cognitive behavioral therapists. And uh, they sat around and, and said, you know, this, this, this stoicism thing that we're interested in, we think could be useful to other people. I think we think we should, we should let people know about this thing. That is how the modern stoicism organization originated. Uh, that's how the first Stoicon event got put together. That's the, the annual meeting for people interested in stoicism. That's how the first Stoic week uh, got put together. So, so there was also a concerted effort, which is still going. And now the modern stoicism organization has, has grown significantly. 
there are now uh, stores, local stores throughout the world. There is a group online that you can check called the Stoic Fellowship. And, uh, and you can actually literally look at the map of the world, click in any part of the world and find if there are Stoic practitioners nearby and hook up with them and, and you know, talk to them directly. Well, we've got time, I think, for one more question. And we have two questions waiting. I'm going to ask both of them, and then I'm going to give you guys the chance to pick which one you find is more interesting. Or to be a lightning round. Lightning <laughs> round. One is comparing at a high level Stoicism to Buddhism. And the other is asking about how Stoicism can be thought about in the individualistic culture of America. Yeah, oh, those yeah. are both great questions. Yeah, these are good questions. All right, I'm gonna well, each, each of you can take one. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm going to try to, oh man. I, but I want to hear Massimo's answer to both. So very quickly. <laughs> uh, and this is an idea I told Massimo. I think I got it from him and maybe got it uh, from someone, someone else. I think of Stoicism as the Western answer to Zen Buddhism, where instead of uh, kind of eliminating the self, uh, it is kind of rooted in reason. And I would say at least, you know, to kind of score one point for the Buddhists, I don't think that mindfulness, you know, which really is a, a cultivation of a particular Buddhist practice called sati meditation, is necessarily found in Stoicism. No. Um, and, and I think that, that, you know, sati meditation is actually a wonderful practice. Um, so giving credit where credit is due. And then very quickly on individualism, I would say very briefly, you know, you have to bear in mind that that's a, a very recent term in history. Uh, and I think if we tried to force ancient philosophers to answer the question, they would be a little baffled. Undeniably, uh, the Stoics are going to emphasize personal responsibility, which has, let's say, flavors of, you know, what we might call individualism in an American sense, uh, not necessarily a European sense, where I gather that word has a more negative connotation. But unquestionably also, the Stoics are going to emphasize repeatedly that you have a place to fill in the kind of like larger uh, civic sphere. So they're going to cite, for example, it looks like they believe in private property, but they've got Aristotle's idea that you have to use it for the public good. Um, and so, yes, the talents, your talents are yours. It's up to you to, to use them, but you have to use them for general benefit. That's right. So my, my take on, on both questions quickly. Yes, I think there are a lot of similarities between Buddhism and Stoicism and some major differences. I tend to think that they are very different in terms of metaphysics. Uh, the Stoics are materialists. They, they believe in cause and effect. That everything is made of matter. The, the, the soul dies after, you know, when you die, et cetera, et cetera. So there's none, not, no, nothing like along the lines of karma, reincarnation or anything like that. But in terms of ethics, there is a lot of congruence. Uh, because uh, they both are about, in a sense, taking, taking stock of the human condition and trying to do something to make, make it better. To, you know, your duty is, in fact, to make life better for, for other people. So, in a sense, I, I certainly agree with, with Brian that, that Stoicism is kind of the, the Western response to, um, to Buddhism. In terms of uh, American individualism, that's a, that's a really interesting question. So, the way I present to my students, because we I actually teach a course at City College on, on happiness, and I, um, I show them some data that are pretty clear at this point that have been accumulating uh, in the social psychology literature for a while. Americans are by far the most unhappy people on the planet, um, especially among Western societies. 
and the, their degree of unhappiness it's actually directly correlated with the with all these emphasis on external material goods on career on money on, on etc etc at the detriment of relationships uh, what makes people really happy truly happy uh, is in fact having cultivating good relationships with other people with with family friends and so on and so forth and uh, so in a sense stoicism is particularly good for americans because it's kind of an antidote to this excessive individualism that has taken over the united states particularly in the last few decades i mean america itself has actually you know we have to remember that the united states has already now a certain history you know not as long as you know by european standards but it's not like the united states was always uh characterized by the kind of extreme consumerism and individualism that we have now uh it has gone through periods that were much more socially inclined much more uh you know open to the kinds of uh society that that they're more typical of Europeans uh, in, uh, in modern times. So Stoicism is definitely a counterpoint to that. And I, I think one of the reasons that a lot of Americans are flocking to Stoicism is precisely because they are unhappy about this, this rat race that doesn't seem to let them, uh, lead them any, anywhere. This concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Special thanks to our guests, Brian and Massimo. I'm happy to plug Brian's book on Epictetus's concept of roles, which you can find easily on Amazon. And as long as you're shopping, you can find Massimo's book on how to be a Stoic. There's also lots of great videos featuring Massimo about many different subjects that we covered here, going into greater detail on YouTube and elsewhere on the web. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, Just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again, and please join us next week. 